Welcome to MediaPath. I'm Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Here at MediaPath, we take a nice drone shot of the media landscape for you, and then <laughs> we home in on what you're going to want to see up close. Sort of like that opening shot of the Brady house and then cut to Mike Brady walking into the sweet, sweet smell of pork chops and applesauce. <laughs> a tasty analogy since our guest today is Christopher Knight, once a boy portraying a delightful and occasionally confused Peter Brady. Chris has grown into a confident, accomplished, and multi-talented man, and we are going to talk to him about that journey. But first, Fritz, what have you got for us? Well, I want to talk about our contest. I'm very proud oh, of this contest. contest we put together. Yeah, Dean put together where um, our, our producer Dina has been and her team of minions has been working on this thing uh, but we want you to have a chance to win some product from some of our guests for instance we have Cindy Williams book Shirley You Jest we have Iris Shapiro's great book called Betrayal which is about Mitch McConnell we have a pair of tickets to my August 7th opening for Mark Arthur Miller in his show called Soul Searching at the Catalina Jazz Club in Hollywood two tickets to that it will be a blast Here's how you enter. It's very easy. Just comment on the post section of our Facebook group. But you have to join first. Keep that in mind. You can't just post. You have to join first. Just search Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. Sign up to be a member of the uh, community, and that will be it. And if you have any questions, you can always email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com, and Dina will uh, answer your question. But we'd love to have you sign up because we're giving away some good tchotchkes. Am I eligible for this contest? I would keep you and your family. Okay. Got it. All, right. All right. So my media picks. I'll, I have a couple. I'll start with this one. It's called uh, Mormon No More. We've got blended families on the menu. So I thought I would tell you about a documentary on Hulu called Mormon No More, which focuses on LGBTQ folks within the LDS church. Same-sex relationships are still prohibited by Mormon elders, and that intransigence has been deadly. Rates of suicide, anxiety, and depression in gay teens are greatly higher within Mormon communities. Kids who grow up Mormon are taught that the only way to make it into the celestial kingdom of eternal life with your family members is to engage in an opposite-sex marriage, and so they do. But now gay LDS parents are leaving their marriages and the church and leaving devastated spouses in their wake. They are forming new blended families and teaching their kids that living an authentic life is what matters most. Mormon No More follows two LDS women who fell in love, left their husbands, and are together raising their seven kids. That's one more than the Bradys, unless you count Cousin Oliver. <laughs> their story is beautifully told, and it invites each of us to live, teach, and celebrate our truth. Awesome. Yeah. So we've had two very interesting, uh, diametrically opposed views of the LDS Church and then the fundamentalist LDS Church, which we talked about last week, which is a little darker. Right. Well, I have a great movie. It's Elvis. It's out in theaters now. I'm sure it'll stream in some year. I went to theater last weekend to see Elvis. This was good timing, Weezy, because you and I interviewed Sally Hodel, who was author of Elvis, Destined to Die Young. And in it, she hints at what a diabolical character Colonel Tom Parker was. Well, this movie dramatizes that. Colonel Tom, played by Tom Hanks, was not a colonel. And he was not really Tom Parker, but he was a Northern <laughs> European immigrant in the United States illegally who was responsible for both the successes and the failures, who was just a dark character overseeing at one time the most famous person on the planet. Now, in the movie, it kind of seemed like cartoon villainy to me a little bit, but, but I guess it was true to the real Colonel Parker. Austin Butler plays an 
eerily right on Elvis. From his almost feminine beauty to the physical part of his performances to his speaking voice to the songs which he sang himself with uncanny accuracy. Wow. Really a very talented man. This movie is another Baz Luhrmann fever dream. If you remember Moulin Rouge, it's a constant explosion of sight and sound, many times overdone but to make a point. Luhrmann uses a device used in movies a lot lately where he takes an original song like an Elvis song, then he does a mashup and he morphs it into like thumping hip hop beats. And it's kind of an effect, not, not all Elvis purists are going to be happy about this, but I think it kind of makes Elvis' songs contemporary. And uh, it's pretty interesting because, you know, they've been worn out in our minds for over 50 years. There are scenes where Elvis, as a young man, is brought up in a really poverty-stricken area of Tupelo, Mississippi, and is being exposed to the power of early blues. Then he gets caught up in the redemptive spirit of the gospel music of the church. And as we know, he ended up being the first to expose white America to those genres of music. Before him, that music had been mainly found on race records or black music stations. There are Arthur Crudup and Big Mama Thornton portrayed, whose songs Elvis first covered, That's All Right, Mama and Hound Dog. There are many clashes in this movie. Innocence against greed, the sacred against the profane, commerce against art, and one of the oldest stories in Hollywood, an innocent, gifted person gets bamboozled by a con man. But it's an amazing movie and a beautiful, and the performances are spectacular. And it seems like a guy like Elvis, who, who grew up without a lot of sophistication or any sophisticated folks around him, by sophisticated I just mean people that would understand the law and contracts mm -hmm. and all the complexities that he's about to launch himself into, come face to face with all these big, huge decisions as the world watches, he had to rely on one guy and he was the type of person that was going to pick a guy and stick with that guy because he would feel lost without the, that one guy. And he was loyal to people that were loyal to him. You know, he had this fatal loyalty to everybody, including all of his, you know, the Memphis Mafia that lived with him in Graceland. Mm -hmm. But he tried to quit Colonel Tom a couple of times, but Colonel Tom was a master. He, he got his start in the carnival and he was a great BSer and he just had a way of luring him back in and making it lucrative and worth his while. It was very sad, but I guess that was the dynamic. And there's a clip on YouTube that shows Dick Clark at a symposium about current music in 1998 and somebody asked him a question about Colonel Tom Parker and he went off on him. He said this man was evil incarnate and uh, fascinating. But anyway, great movie and I highly recommend it. Even if you're not an Elvis fan, it's a great piece of American music history. Absolutely. So I have one more uh, pick for you. It's a YouTube gem. Now you may not know this here in America, but Sir Tom Jones is a coach on the UK version of The Voice where he is known to, with the slightest suggestion, stand up from his coaching chair and launch into song, and it is a thing of glorious beauty. Sir Tom throws <laughs> down some serious sounds, and when the sir lays into a song, that song just gives up and says, I have been sung by my one true love, and I forevermore forsake all others. When Tom, <laughs> when Tom erupts into song, the audience goes completely mad, and fellow coach Jennifer Hudson pulls out her phone and begins filming as if the entire production is not being professionally recorded. She's like, Ooh, man, do I have a good seat for this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just type Tom Jones and The Voice into YouTube and you're welcome.
One of the great singers of all time. It's so much fun to watch him on The Voice. So much fun. Well, we have a fantastic guest. I can't wait to talk to him. Yes. Christopher Knight is a technology pioneer, an entrepreneur, and a businessman, but he has long since accepted that he will never outrun his Brady heritage. Chris played Peter Brady from 1969 through 74, and since then, the spinoffs and reunions just keep on coming. So let's start out by uh, talking about your early childhood, Chris, because I, I, I found this part interesting. Your dad's an actor, and when you guys moved to Hollywood, all of you kids start going on auditions. How, did you like that? It, it doesn't sound like it was ever your initial idea. I feel like my early childhood hasn't ended. Uh, no, it wasn't my idea. I mean, in a, in a, in a very real kind of way, um, your parents are as we all are, a reflection of their parents, you know, and, mm. and, and the world that they grew up in. And though my, my dad was born in the United States, he, his parents weren't, you know, they were immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and though I wasn't around when my dad was a boy, um, my recollection of my grandparents' home, my paternal grandparents' home, was that it was odd. Mm. And I now look at that with more adult eyes and the oddity was that it was very old school. It was very uh, European or different. It was different than my friend's home who lived by me, um, who m- perhaps didn't have immigrant uh, grandparents. Um, you're, you're talk- your grandparents. Different than my home. It was just, it was just, it was just uh, rooted in something that was foreign to me. Mm-hmm. I would learn over over years, perhaps, that that was because it was rooted in in their upbringing in Middle Europe. You mm-hmm. know, and uh, talk about your yeah. heritage. That's important. You were hung- you're half Hungarian and half. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's Hungarian. And and this is the the truth is is that my grandfather, when I sat him down, I think it was like 85, 86, and uh, at that time, Jesus, he was he was in his. 90s mm-hmm. uh, he lived to 103 oh wow um he came here in 2012 uh because he he felt that um war was coming it was getting risky to, to be living where he was living in that area he couldn't point to exactly on a map because at the time we were dealing with the map is pre the pre-soviet union collapse mm-hmm. um and it was, you know, Czechoslovakia was a was a, a you know inside of the Soviet sphere at mm-hmm. that time. Uh, the area that he grew up in or was born into was was Bohemia, uh, that part of uh, the Czech Republic as we know it today. Um, perhaps <laughs> because the city's yeah. names That's had all so changed. Interesting. He mm-hmm. was there during the Austro-Hungarian um, uh, Empire mm-hmm. uh, and left it. Then it turned, uh, you know, it became a part of um, essentially the German sphere of influence from, you know, the Nazi invasion um, and then was taken over by the Soviets. And then now today it's just it's it's the Czech Republic. So there's there there was a problem with names and him really knowing what the name was today for the city. So he couldn't point to the city, but the general region is that Bohemian region of um, of the Czech Republic. Uh, what city? I don't know. My my mother is a little more mysterious. She was an only child. Um, I I have um, uh, like an immigration map, if you will, that I w- that that was presented by, I think it was um, Ancestry at one time. I did a little work for them, and and um, that I knew about my my father's uh, family. I didn't know anything about my mother's, uh, but on it you can see the immigrants coming here into this country in the. Early 1900s, but 
indicating at the time, I guess the, the, the uh, census taken every 10 or so years, um, they get to requote where they're from. Oh, <laughs> there's not they're not consistent what, what, what with are, where they're from. And they're either from Russia or England. What an and, interesting <laughs> conund- what an interesting identity crisis to not be able to describe exactly where you're from. I mean, so much of your like your subconscious identity is that is there's no one where to point to on the map. That's so interesting. Yeah, but there's a lot of people like especially me. I'm Jewish. I'm Jewish. All four grandparents are Jewish. And you like, are. you know, what Chris is talking about, the borders keep changing. And, you know, is it Romania? Is it Ukraine? Is it you know, where is it exactly? And that's my mother's family. She's, yeah. You know, she, we think so it's Minsk or someplace over there, but her her um, uh, immigrant uh, grandparents, I don't know if it was grandparents or great grandparents, but she had, her family had been here uh, a few more generations. Um, but again, on this on the census data, I think it was from 1880, every 10 years they get to requote where they're from and it's not consistent. So they can just- right? No them. one's checking what they said 10 years ago. If at the time we were uh, allies with Russia, then they were from- uh, someplace in Russia and or it was it was I think it's Belarus. I mean, I, I believe it's Minsk. It could be Ukraine. It could be um, uh, Kiev. I, 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 it's all that region. Right. And, I think they're um, just cosplaying their census. They're like, we're Scottish, aren't we? They ended up in England before they came to the, you know, the United States. Yeah. And so, you but know, that's England so was always interesting because because I mean, he just he just represented something that probably plays out over all of Ellis Island and all the immigrants to this country. You, you sort of had to be sensitive as to what America's relationship was with the country you mm-hmm. were coming from to make sure they said, well, you're from there. We're throwing you back out or something. That's very interesting. Right. I mean, it's like things became very uncomfortable for German immigrants yeah. before oh, World War God. One and World War Two. So, yeah, it's like I'm from wherever you need me to be from. <laughs> I just want to stay I, here. And looking back on it, too, I, I have um, um, no, I'm, although I'm hesitating, I, I, I say this with no hesitation, meaning that I, I with conviction, I, I believe this. I have no proof of this, of course, but that if part of my dad's um, medieval Catholic family, because they were real, ruthlessly <laughs> Catholic, um, were would have been perhaps they would have been Nazis mm-hmm. if they would have remained where they were. Um, and they probably not that they ever shared it or that I saw any any evidence of, of sentiment pro-Nazi in their home. I look back on it now going, you know, there was there was some strident beliefs that perhaps um, one could associate with them going that route. Mm-hmm. Very, wait, very My mom is Jewish. Very right wing. Yeah. <laughs> that oh, was yeah. a big issue. Or, or believing, yeah, that somehow, you know, Anglo-Saxon humans are, you know, superior. Or, and then were, were they okay with that marriage? Do you feel like their grandparents were okay with your parents' marriage? There was so much lore in my dad's family with these, you know, literally part of what was unique about my grandparents' home is that my dad was the youngest of seven born children. One, uh, there was rumors of didn't survive, uh, but no one had any information on him or would talk of it. Uh, um, two sisters and a brother, all older than my dad, never moved out of the house. When my family, when his family moved from Brooklyn to uh, the United States, they moved to Burbank in like 58. Um, Those two girls and one of his brothers came with them, had their own rooms and they never moved out. Yeah. My dad and his two older brothers 
uh, found the way, uh, found a way on the road. There's a door um, here somewhere. I just know it. And it's, it was just, and I guess I don't know if that's more old school or U- old European or you know way Catholic. You know, I don't know. But. I think that happened in a lot of immigrant families simply because that home felt more natural to them than the rest of the United States. So they, in a lot of immigrant families, they kind of they stay in in the ho- the first home purchased uncles and aunts kind of stay put because they speak the the old tongue there and they're just more comfortable the foods they cook and everything just feels more more like home to them as i understood it was a tradition that the oldest girl um in some cases stayed with mom and dad to mm-hmm. take care of them in their in you know in their older age my dad was way younger than his brothers and sisters literally oh. um I can only imagine the the lack of birth control being 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 practiced. But she gave birth to my dad in 1925 when she was 43 years old. You know, uh, and they had a picture of the family pre him and pre his sister who was born two years earlier than him, uh, and they were about 13 years younger than everybody else. Um, and that photo, it was like sort of one of those old photographs from you know 1920 that sort of hand painted lightly you know it mm-hmm. was it almost looked like a painting but it was a painted photograph it didn't include my dad and his sister and they never took another family photograph oh, in wow. fact we found it in the rafters of my of my grandfather's house um and it was wrapped um in the sports page from the brooklyn paper wow. in 1958 and that brooklyn paper was announcing that the Dodgers were moving to Los Angeles, and wow. I had to rip it apart oh, no. because I didn't know what was in it. I didn't know what the, the, the this thing had been stuffed up into the rafters to never be seen again. And um, and that was because it didn't complete the whole family, so we'll just put that away. And um, but it was I had to I had to burrow through this Brooklyn sports page about you know this historic event. Uh, to realize what was in it. And, but your um, dad grows up an American boy, and he becomes an actor. Well, he will, and, and oddly and interestingly, he was studying architecture. He went oh. to Catholic U, wow. studying to be an architect on his GI Bill. He luckily just missed fighting. He was he was training, and the war ended. To be, uh, I think it was a torpedo bomber. Uh, I think they had a life expectancy of one and a half missions. So. Um, but he never, you know, he was studying flight when uh, the war ended. But he still got a GI Bill, and um, and he was educated. He went to Catholic U to be an architect, and as it turned out, the architect uh, architectural students had to build the sets, and that was his introduction to theater. Oh. And my dad, being quite a um, um, a looker for you know um, by his own admission, <laughs> he, had, he, he was he was. Um, um, uh, Lifeguard for uh, umpteen years in Jones Beach back there in New York. Um, outdoors kind of guy, virile. Um, he saw himself quite the matinee idol. Um, but he was studying to be an architect. And then he saw what he wanted to do when he watched other actors on stage getting all that attention. Wow. That was for him. Yeah. So, um, you know, he and, and Catholic U had an incredible theater arts department. So um, that's what he did. And I grew up in, you know, in a family, though I was born in New York. We were raised here uh, because my dad, as an actor, uh, to whom theater was acting and everything else wasn't. Mm. Um, but that he would be excused for pursuing making money in other mediums 
because now he had a family. He wouldn't do that before having a family <laughs> because that was not what you would do if you were a real actor. Did he celebrate your career when you lowered yourself and went into television? He did. You know, he Good. did. He was he was very warm, much more so. I got to compare it much more so than my mom. She was she had issues with it. She had issues with it because she was an artist, you know, Parsons grad. She I didn't realize how much of an artist she was because she just put everything away when children were born because the 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 act of life uh, in having kids and more than she could uh, afford or take care of. Um, was so frightening to her there was no time for anything else and being an only child i don't think she really understood what it was to have multiple children and uh, and they kept coming <laughs> did she feel like um, and you she couldn't control them and you've described your your home life as being somewhat chaotic do you, do you think your mom felt embarrassed or defensive about the brady family depicting something she wasn't able to create absolutely her- Right on the money. Exactly. That, I mean, it was frustrating to me why, you know, that, I mean, as a a child, too, you start out with your parents' sentiment as you're younger. And then, of course, either either you continue and you double down on it because, you know, you're you're totally in their camp or you're like me, you're you're uh, um, opposed at, at some age to their views. Um, and you set out to make your own, but you start with like opposite views, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I knew that the Brady Bunch was simplistic, clearly, um, and silly. Uh, we were playing characters two, three years younger than ourselves, and in itself, the show was sort of a throwback to the. Family shows of the of the fifties. I mean, it's a throwback to Ozzie and Harriet. You know, <laughs> it's sort of the blended version of Ozzie and yeah. Harriet. Um, and you know, I, you know, I was a year from being drafted. Uh, Vietnam is going all on all around us during the shooting of the show. The show is being produced 60, 69 through seventy four. Um, those were tumultuous years, but none of that was dealt with in the show. So mm-hmm. at the time, I was sort of my life, you know, in this family was uniquely different than the life I led outside of the set. Um, but at the same time. I, I, my mom just despised its simplicity and it's the lack of realism in it. But over time, I also realized that, you know, this environment seems to be healthier <laughs> and I'm working in Hollywood mm-hmm. than the environment I get at home. Mm-hmm. Um, so she didn't understand the, 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 um, the mission of American television to be escapist. It didn't have to reflect reality. Maybe it's to take you out of the reality of your lives. And on some level, it took her out of the reality of her life and said, okay, well, we're not this, but for a minute I can fantasize. Yeah, she, she said it was unrealistic and everything had to be realistic. And, uh-huh. and, and uh, I think part of that was, 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 was because she, was, um, she wasn't able to, to provide that for us. Mm-hmm. And you know, in her defense, I mean, it was it was a struggle. You know, my dad mm-hmm. was an actor who who decided that he could work in television because it wasn't it, it wouldn't be below him if he had a family to feed. Um, so that's why we came to California. I mean, he was a New York. He wanted to be a stage actor, and there was very little work back there. So he came out. We drove cross country uh, um, in 1958 for Thanksgiving. My brother was a year older than me. I was two. He was three. Can you imagine that? This is before the highway system. This is before seatbelts. Um, and we're driving cross country to spend a week with my grandparents because they had moved out to California. And um, 
my dad was going to investigate what work there was in this new industry um, <laughs> that was called television. Yes. That might, it doesn't seem like it's going away and there's work there uh, for actors. So my dad was going to investigate that. We never went back. Um, came, never went, moved back to New York. My mom says my attitude as a two-year-old completely changed. And I can understand why. I mean, we were living in a one-bedroom flat, you know, barely making ends meet in, in the Upper East Side. Um, and then we moved to California where there's open spaces and the weather's better. And my mom said, your attitude sort of changed somewhere around the Grand Canyon as we got into Arizona. <laughs> so and I, there's something, there's something, you know, um, uh, probably very truthful about that. It probably did because <laughs> it's like my brother literally was trying to kill me from the time we were infants. Here and I are, you know, wonderful friends today. We've had our ups and downs throughout the years. But he admits that recognizing now, because we shared this small environment in a crib together, um, that that that's prob that was what he was trying to do. He was so pissed off that I came around <laughs> as an infant um, that he would do anything he could to annoy me or break things like my fingers um, and other things. And you know, I, I my we we uh, my dad being from Brooklyn, he raised pigeons. Through raising pigeons, we came to California. We raised pigeons in California. He taught us the pigeon raising. But it's interesting when you're raising birds like that how much um well uh, the, the, you know the idea of a pecking order stems from the nest um mm. and how birds survive i mean it's the, you, the nest of birds is as big as um the season provides in other words oh. they're not all going to survive okay and my dad thought that he literally thought that he he didn't think we'd all live <laughs> Wow. So, you survival know, like, of the it's, it's going to be survival of the fittest. It was a, the setup. A, an air and a spare. <laughs> yeah. But you got your, your pigeons apart on the Brady Bunch. Right. I got I got some sanctuary that I was able to go off to. I look back on it. You know, my sister is three years younger than me. And my, my brother, bless his soul, he's not around anymore. He was seven years younger than me. I'm working and I'm 11. That means he's four. My yeah, mom so was with talk me. about that. So you moved out here. <laughs> you spent too much time in the car with your younger brother, and then uh, my older brother. Older your brother. older brother. And what 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 launched you onto your? When, when did you start well, the audition again, process? Again, getting back to the whole reason for working us is that I guess that was a an, what happened to them was they were kids. You know, the parents, uh, you know, put them out to work. You literally rent your kid out to a family who who needs something done. You know, for a while. Uh, happened to his brother, um, as the story goes. Uh, you know, for a month they had to live with another family because they were building something or needed some help somewhere, and um, uh, he was um, needing to repay uh, the family for something that he had destroyed or or, or stole or something. Anyway, anyways, they had to go up to another family, um, and that's the way they worked amongst themselves. You know, and 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 so I, my dad's idea was, well, you can, you know, at eight years old, seven years old, we get you an agent. There's nothing going to stop you. I mean, there, there's no resume required at seven, right? Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's 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 literally excuse the expression, shoot against the wall. Mm -hmm. We'll just see. You know, we'll put you out on those interviews, and if you get work, you get work. If you don't, okay. So, what is you it about your personality that gets you the job? I don't know. My mom thought it was going to be my brother. He was the outgoing one. I wasn't. I was sort of internal, and I guess in her mind, sullen. I watched everything. Um, but I was in, I, I was introverted, but something happened inside those rooms because my brother and I went on every interview together for two years. We, I mean, they don't bring you in the room at the same time. Um, they interview you separately like they do every other kid there. 
But I got the very first interview I went on, and, it, and then the third interview, and it just kept going like that. Wow. And he never worked. Oh, my gosh. How did that he never affect you? For your... two years, he never worked. And then finally he said, why do I have, you know, this is not working out for me. Uh, do I have to keep doing this? And my mom said no. You know, I guess my dad was disappointed in that because, you know, his 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 opportunity was maybe in the future if he would have continued at it. But I hated going. I mean, what kid would want to go on interviews? You're, I mean, I was a kid who loved my friends. They were my they were my sanctuary and, and actually protectors against my brother all through school as well. And and, and you know, we make plans for the afternoon. You know, mm-hmm. a little, it's sort of I lived a Huck Finn kind of life out there in the West Valley. It was wide open spaces. And um no, I mean, my mom literally said, don't come home till dinner, you know, I mean, go play on the freeway, all the, all those expressions, <laughs> wow. not that she meant that, but there was, there was none of what we have today in the way of that worry that, that mm-hmm. a mother has. And I did, I mean, I had this incredible freedom and, and explored like crazy. Um, but does your father ever get work in up. television? Yeah, a little bit, mm-hmm. a little bit. But he also worked at Dodger Stadium. He worked at Brooks Brothers. He did all the things an actor does, oh, except wow. for wait tables. He never had that job. Mm-hmm. Um, highly edge. I mean, I, I laugh at it. I mean, I mean, laugh at it. It's a, it's a, it's a cruel, a cruel reality that that actors are the most educated homeless people there are. Wow. I mean, they are near homeless. Uh, you know, he's, he, 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 you know, and he had an artful Dodger kind of, kind of streak to him. You know about 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 right and wrong you know rules were you know meant to be bent to his favor you know he was a survivor um he just he you know it, and it just it was <laughs> there wasn't enough resource to go around mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. what caused yeah. a lot of that um angst what, what was that. your what was your first uh, job in television it was a purex commercial yeah purex commercial uh, sliding into home plates so like what I mean, how many kids go on that interview? And what was wrong with everyone who didn't get the role? I mean, they didn't mm-hmm. even really test your sliding ability because you're in an office, you know. <laughs> uh, so, so it couldn't be your skill set. Um, and I got it. You know, it's you know, it. Um, I can't tell you what it was, um, and I don't even remember the interview. I don't remember the initial interview for the Brady Bunch. But why would I? I mean, you go on so many over, you just forget all about them. Not that I have to remember the Brady's is because it turned into a success, but there was no anticipating that it would have been the one to stay on the air and then continue to be sort of like this evergreen over you know, after 50 years. So. Well, the Brady brand has enjoyed success in TV, film, stage, animation, and music. And so the next logical step was podcasting. So talk <laughs> yes. about the real Brady bros, because that's a show that really delves into the minutiae of things that most people don't remember about their childhood, but you are consistently not only reminded of, but asked about. Right. Well, what's interesting is um, most people have, you know, until they go back through photos, you know, forget their childhood until something sparks a a memory. Mm -hmm. And yes, I have this this show to help that spark. Um, And thinking that, well, it's had 50, now for 53 years, on the air that all those sparks have has, have sparked um, was how I entered this. Um, but no, in fact, they spark also just in conversation with somebody else who was there, whose eyes were uh, viewing different uh, different things, you right. know, or who, whose processes um, recorded different events um, 
well, uniquely their way. And mm-hmm. we get to share, you know, our perspectives on what we were in, um, what we saw, what we did, how we view it now. And it's a hoot. I never expected it to be this much fun or that there would be this much revelation in it um, in doing the podcast. And this podcast was actually the idea of our old friend, Ed Mann. Ed Mann, he, who was my partner at Premier Radio, my my brother for life. And we, like you created the Brady Bunch with your five siblings. Ed and I, with a few other siblings, created Premier Radio Networks. We don't have a theme song, but, um, you know, that's that could be in the works, you know, at a moment. But, yeah, Ed and I have, have a lot of wonderful memories together creating something innovative in the radio space. And, you know, he's a perfect fit for you guys. I love the episodes that he hosts where it's a Q&A. The Q&A, right. Because he's got that great radio voice. He does. Let me ask you, <laughs> you something. Do you think that um, uh, people's interest in your podcast and in the Bradys in general is for a couple of reasons? First of all, we have all these great new nostalgia channels like me, which is introducing the Bradys to an all new several generations of people. But also in the general malaise in which we find ourselves in in this country, people are drawn back to those warmer uh family Simpler. shows where where there's more black and white there's more at the end of the day everybody argues but it's a family sitting around the table and we all love one another do you I think mean, there's absolutely. a little bit of that uh, drawing people back toward those great memories yeah and and we've experienced these these cycles mini cycles uh, and i think right now we're in a major cycle we're, we are as turbulent maybe even more so uh, as a society today, as we were when this show was uh, conceived and 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 uh, you know licensed uh, to go mm-hmm. to air in uh, 68, 69, um, with all that was going on at that time, and I think there's a reason for for that, and that is because um, the more yes, the more the more people um, find the outside world. Uh, dangerous uh, or distrust it, the more they want to fall back into into thoughts of childhood. Um, that if it wasn't trustworthy, we romanticize it as though it was because there was an innocence in our childhood. There's, an, there's, there's some kind of need for us to um, find that innocence again um, and rest from what our mind wanders through uh, in the, the the space outside mm. the walls of your your home, and mm. and I think that's the reason for the success of the show too, and the reason it's continuing to be evergreen. Firstly, it's because it's almost last of a genre of the innocent type of depiction of family, um, that throwback to the fifties, and that and that fifties era was really I- ideal. I mean, if you think about it, it, it's 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 you know, United States wasn't up until that point, you know, a superpower, and all of a sudden it's got. You know, it's growing like crazy. Um, the automobile is tying people together. We're finishing, uh, you know, this, 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 you know, our ribbon of highway. Our our being was was in that time was about a purity and a no. There was there was no reason to believe that we couldn't be anything we wanted. You know, and and there was so, there was so much positivity. Uh, in that era, Promising I think everybody has that- tried tried to relive it, you know, ever since. And though, you know, I think comedy is much better today um, than it was back back then. There was a lot of controls placed on 
on comedy. It, the fact is, is it was more innocent back then. And there was something nice about it. Say, I mean, we re, we, we reapproach it every Christmas. We all, as even adults, get into the idea of that innocence again with Santa mm-hmm. Claus mm-hmm. and the holidays. And then we leave it. <laughs> we one. leave it for 11 months. But you know months. what? Uh, it, it was a safe haven, especially in contrast to where we are now. But you didn't avoid topics that were in the forefront of people's consciousness like you joined the military in one episode didn't and, at all and, no, and no that was later end, yes right yeah. that was and also uh, you know you you went into real family problems like marsha with a with a alcohol issue there for a but while that's the reunions that's not the original those reunions. are the reunions so i know but the question that i would have if we would have continued we we did five seasons is all originally mm-hmm. and the reason for that is in part was because it's a kid's show about about the um uh, about kids about mm-hmm. young kids about that innocence that really only plays or you can play with kids mm-hmm. who are requiring that kind of innocence in their home to be healthy as you grow up to be an adult you cannot continue uh, you know uh, playing that and 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 be a healthy adult so you have to grow up um i don't know what the show would have done with us if, if it never went off the air and tried to just be mm-hmm. on for 20 years, I mm-hmm. mean, it would have, the show would have had to have morphed. So when coming back to these reunions, um, they updated it with the current events that were mm-hmm. uh, of the time uh, because we're adults now and you can't ignore the current events. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to the original show, there, were, there was no room for current events because it wasn't about what happened outside the front door. Well, Greg might have been. It was smoking. about what happens inside of that door. That's what a kid's issue. That's where a kid's initial community is, and what they're trying, uh, the place that they're trying to figure their place in. But first, did, do, you first do it there. Do you feel that Robert Reed maybe had some influence over the reunions to get into more, uh, more issues that that actual people face, or is that just something that needed? I to don't ha- think so. Yeah, I don't think it was Bob Reed. I think it was a network. I mean, the networks recognize, why are they bringing it back? Well, it's still got this popularity. They won't die. I mean, every network is looking to leverage success. So um, it's a business. So if they think that they're going to be, if they're putting it on the air, it's because they think they're going to get ratings. And if they, they're going to get ratings, it's because there's something in the air about that innocence being needed again. And that's why I call them mini cycles. I mean, there's been these reunions every like seven years. And now I call it a major cycle because it's like an overwhelming need now. But in those mini cycles, you got Gordon Gecko, you got you got you, you mm-hmm. got other issues that are pulling us apart slightly. Um, and and you, we sort of a need for a reprieve and all of a sudden the Brady's are are, are res- resurrected to display that except for it's not the kids show anymore. It's always sort of an adult cut on it. Um, so it isn't exactly what we remember from our childhood because, well, we're not kids anymore. And we really, you know, unless we are all having our own family and we're dealing with those kids, could it even approach being that innocent? Well, what I what I really love with uh, the podcast and with the, the renovation show was getting to know your real, the real people, your real actual personalities. Because... You kind of get a window into why you were each cast because everyone is just so likable. And you guys, are, are, you know, just kind of like jump off the screen. You're just really charming, good-natured folks. And you could see why Sherwood cast you kids because 
everyone has just such a wonderful personality. And that's why I think. Well, thank that, you. To me, explains the longevity of the show is it's you guys. So tell us how you enjoyed the the renovation show, and if that was fun to just get to be yourself. It was. It was. It was remarkable. I mean, here it is. The network has bought a home. They have no idea what to do with it because it wasn't like they had an idea. It was they were reading an article in a paper that the Brady home was for sale, and they said we should buy it. And somebody, somebody in the in that in that creative meeting at at uh, HGTV said we should buy it, and somebody else said. Yeah, we should. Hmm. <laughs> and they did. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, I had to move on it quickly. It, it moved far too quickly for them to conceive of what they were going to do with it once they owned it. So they were working backwards. Um, but, you know, we met with them because at one point after they owned the home, the home that they, they thought, OK, so now what are we going to do with this? So that they needed to then go do a little Brady history um, and brought us together, those who were in Los Angeles. Um, uh, to just discuss their purchase of the home and, you know, and not that they were telling us what was going to happen with the home, but they wanted us somehow involved. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but before then, we just sat down and talked the Brady in the house and they didn't realize that the 50th anniversary of the Brady's of the airing, uh, you know, was the next season, the season that this thing would come out in. Oh. It was like, oh, let me take a note of that. OK, <laughs> so the whole idea just sort of snowballed into a bigger and bigger project because it was just really well timed. Um, and what became very real for us when we started the production is um, reality has, um, though it might be real moments, it has constructs um, uh, that are thought through before putting the camera in front of anything, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, otherwise, you just you wouldn't have really you just have a match. Still has to be produced. Right. Yeah. So they're thinking of arcs and 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 uh, concepts that they're going to um, move on. And one of the concepts that they started with um, and they were dedicated to was that we're going to see this house and open the front door and it was going to be like oh my gosh what happened like like it was no longer looked like our house and it was it was like guys we didn't even know about this place <laughs> we didn't know where this was and we know the inside isn't going to look like our set so you want to i mean this is reality um but it needed to be played that way um for the sake of the audience but in 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 doing that what they were presenting to us is the way the audience saw us and to a person in our cast none of us knew where that house was (laughs) we all started living in la i know today i think there's three of us who who live um, out of state um but four of us grew up in the valley and none of us knew where that house was and didn't ask where it was for years i know for me it was until about 95. Oh my! When I, when I realized, you know, I bet you Lloyd knows where that house is. Lloyd Schwartz, yeah. Sherwood Schwartz's son. Did they use a crane to get those establishing oh, shots? Yes. Or was there an office building? Oh, I mean, on our show? Yeah, the, on the, your show. There wasn't. Re- if you notice, it, it really doesn't move. It's it's literally almost a photograph. They did bring cameras out there and put it up on a ladder. Okay. And 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 take that shot, but it's an establishing shot. Mm-hmm. We joked about there's no way the house that we walk through, the set that we walk through could be in that house. Mm-hmm. You know, because there it doesn't look I mean, mom and dad's bedroom is down the hallway in the back. How could it be out front because that window out front is obviously somebody's room. Uh-huh. There wasn't a window out front. They put um the set dressers put a um a full window up. 
to make that house. It's a one-story house, a split-level California ranch-style split-level house. You saw it on HGTV's mm -hmm. project. Um, but when they took the, the stock shot, it was just a, f um, a faux window placed on uh, that barn siding right in front to make it look like that was a bedroom. Okay. Um, there wasn't one. And I, I mean, literally, I, you know, and this is part of what we deal with on the podcast, um, it, it, bring, it brings into question, like, how did it all come together? Brady, episode number one, the, 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 uh, the wedding episode, uh, the honeymoon. Um, the boys are depicted uh, living in a different house. They're not living in that house. They didn't have that house. Why they didn't have that house? Because that house was a big set with an investment that only comes with a series that got a green light, okay. not with a pilot. <laughs> but you know what? Before you continue, I think you have to set this up for people who are not show business savvy. That was an exterior of a house. They find one that sort of tells the story of the Bradys. But the but the show itself was shot where? At Paramount. Paramount Studios five, on a big old largest, long stage. Yeah, one of the, their biggest stages. Um, and we took the whole thing up, and it's uh, you know all sets are on one floor. The stairway clearly goes up and then it dead ends. So if you're an actor going off to the boy's bedroom, you'd go up the stairs, that shot would cut. Uh, we'd disappear around and stop. Then then they show us walking either down the hallway or just into the boy's room. Mm -hmm. But that boy's room was, you know, somewhere, you know, further down the set. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't a second floor that we shot on. So they there wasn't a real house. There wasn't a real sky. There was no... I mean, clearly looking at that backyard, it wasn't outside. You can see the shadows from the trees, you know, in 45 different directions. Um, so even your driveway was indoors yes. when Mike would pull in. Mm -hmm. That was all indoors. Big enough set that you could you could drive cars, you yeah. know, as so long you, as you turned them off. So you'd go without up the too stairs. much carbon monoxide. <laughs> yeah. So you'd set. go up the stairs. They'd say cut and you'd walk back down the stairs. And we, well, yeah, so we weren't just stopped up there. But yeah, they wouldn't photograph us walking back down. But then right. if the scene is to continue in one of the bedrooms upstairs, then they'd show, they reset a camera in the boys' room mm -hmm. um, and then show us coming into the boys' room. And then when put together, of course, it gives you the the flow and and, and, and represents, the, you know, that the, the, the boys' bedroom's upstairs because you walked upstairs to get into it. Nonetheless, that's a set. That's what we knew. Uh, that's the environment that we were in. And, and though it was home, uh, the set was the home. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. The, mm -hmm. Well, let's just say the set, the sound stage was the home. The set was inside of the sound stage. The whole thing was the home. Um, and it was a piece of that sound stage. That was our environment. The, 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 the audience at home over 50 years has come to know us living in that home um, uh, to such a degree, even if they're from, you know, the entertainment industry and know how this works lose track of the fact that we didn't really live there or that we didn't all live together. I mean, I, I, just a, f a funny aside here. So at one point during the, the you know, the, I don't think it was 2010, you know, the reality um, craze, uh, there was somebody had an idea about doing um, something for Harris. Uh, uh, I think it was a Harris backed thinking about backing a reality show that could help advertise their hotel. And they wanted to theme all these hotel rooms. And one of the hotel rooms in theme that they were wanting to, uh, or contemplating um, building or, or showing on television was something like the Brady Room. So 
somebody's reaching out to see if there'd be interest. And I'm thinking, okay, so the question goes, okay, so what you want to, uh, it's going to be a hotel, but it's going to be done like the Brady house. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, and then uh, what are we going to do there? Um, my question. Well, you live there. Uh, okay. Okay. And, and, and then do what? Well, just be the Brady's be you guys. I go, you realize we're not, I mean, we're not a family. <laughs> we don't live in a home together. It was like long quiet. It was like, oh my God. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, but, but we think you do, you know, so we'll just do that. I go, but that was scripted. It, it realized there's a, there was an effort to making us a family. We, we had, How did this person get, get into a position of responsibility? Well, I don't, never went, I never went anywhere. I mean, this and is now let me ask you this. corporate you said, America trying to do television. Yes, exactly. You, you benefit brought, themselves is backwards. You brought up a good point. You're not a family, but talk about the family that you were, not on script, but off script. You worked with other kids. It was a kid's show presented by kids. You worked together all day. You went to school on set all day. You, you spent eight, 12 hours a day. How was that? How was that having all that youth on the set? And was it hard? Was it like a real family? What was the vibe? Well, I, I mean, um, I think it was, it was exceptional. Uh, um, so I wouldn't, uh, if I had children, I wouldn't let them be in show business until they're <laughs> really 18, not because of my personal experiences. <laughs> I know it sounds, um, odd, but it, it, the reason is, is I don't think that they're going to find themselves in a Brady bunch like environment. I got lucky. Yeah. Um, number one, because it was a show about kids. There was six of us. There was a, almost a critical mass of us children, mostly when you're a, a kid in a show uh, that lasts any length and you're growing up, uh, you're part, you're an appendage to an adult environment. That's really not about you. Sherwood Schwartz wanted it to be a kid-friendly environment. In fact, I'm very lucky that he had this concept for the characters because it, it, it certainly wouldn't have been a member of the cast had he been looking for actors. He didn't want actors. <laughs> mm -hmm. Pretty clear to me in looking at the shows today and some of the writing, he didn't like actors very much <laughs> because of, you know, they were hard to work with. He wanted just real kids and who who he could then get performances out of uh, that... Um, he, he wasn't interested in the performance. I, again, I, I'm, I'm working with very, very limited memories of my interviews, but I don't believe any of the interviews required reading a scene wow. or any acting whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, give me a matchbox, you know, toy and, you know, you know, which one do you like best? You know, it, it's just, you know, having a, a conversation with a kid is what ultimately drove to the selections that you see. Um, I had very little experience speaking, you know, as a kid, I worked a lot, but uh, talking was I'm, was very difficult for me. I was, I was introverted and, and getting anything out in a sequence of little ADD would, would, would be the reason I would ultimately discover caused me to blurt everything out as it all wanted to come out at one time. So um, it, um, it was lucky that, that, that what Sherwood wanted is real kids and he wanted a real environment for them so that it was wholesome for him. And, you know, it, on a kid's set, managed appropriately by the, by the exec, um, there's more restrictions for the adults, 
right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, profanity is held to a, a minimum degree. Um, so there's um, more restrictions on being maybe as adult as one could be in an environment like that. And they certainly didn't stop people from smoking back then. There was smoking on sets and so forth. But um, there was just, uh, it, it, was a clean, it was a cleansed environment. But one of the benefits to then all the adults working on, you know, behind the scenes and on the set is the hours were limited because government mm-hmm. required us to be done in our eight hours. So there was nothing they could do to, I mean, they weren't going to go overtime. Now there were, I mean, they would do the adult scenes if there were any in a show after the kids had been dismissed for the day. Like the, the Mike and Carol scenes would be done after, you know, six o'clock. We, if we had an eight o'clock call, had to be wrapped and out by five. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a nine o'clock call, most of them were nine o'clock calls out by six. And there was no stretch in that. And if it was in during the school season, they they had us less. They had uh, of that eight hours, three of it had to be schooling. So, you know, it, it but for those working around it, it meant that they weren't going to have to work all these overtime hours. So for those mm-hmm. who were not needing the extra money from overtime and wanted to manage their own lives at home, um, it was a very measured show to do. It was predictable in that regard because some of the hours in show business can be rather ugly. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you work 12 hours, 14 hours a day, but we're working eight hours, nine hours a day. And that was what these individuals working on our show wanted. So they accepted the, 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 you know, some of the restrictions because it was a childlike environment, but at the same time, they were more family people themselves. And that was the reason why they wanted the predictability in ours. And it was like, we had then there were six of us, a little critical mass of kids, but we had all these adults around that we either turned into an extension of us or that gave us an experience around adults. I'm that fascinated most kids don't by get. Um, yeah. the fact that Sherwood wanted inex- you know actors with no experience. He didn't say inexperience. He he didn't he didn't want actors. Now that doesn't mean because Barry had quite a bit of experience, but he didn't want them to come off actory. No, no, that, that yes. was my question. How do you direct children that don't have a lot of speaking, acting experience? That that's that must be that must require a certain skill, on a director's part. I'm not certain that most kid actors, at least through 10 or 12, can, can, would have the capacity um, to, to act the way um, an adult would be trained to act. So mm-hmm. even if they had some schooling um, uh, to be an actor, I, 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 I didn't, but I don't believe that you teach a child the things that you teach an adult, the, the, the depth of what, it go, what goes into bringing a character to life. Um, but I mean, so you say so you, you. So, so, so the experience when a kid has is just literally the experience of knowing your lines. You know, you got to you got to line by talk, line and nurse them through and, and you got to hit marks and you got to do stuff. It. And it's about playing and it's about playing um, a, a different kind of way. It's not just, you know, it's but but most kids are actually kind of gifted at play acting. Right. And until they're, you know, um, they're old enough to think to about do, it. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's part of why they're that, you know, the old statement, you know, that the actors don't want to work with children or, or, or animals <laughs> outside of the fact that, you, you know, that animals might make you work forever trying to, you know, <laughs> get an acceptable cut with kids. I mean, how do you, uh, you know, the kid can upstage an adult without even trying with no experience. The kid can, I, I think one of the healthier aspects of this show 
as opposed to even leave it to beaver where there were you know two children well sometimes it'd be friends on the set but if you read like ron howard's book like he really looked forward to the days when he was going to be in a classroom and there'd be other kids there but right. you guys had a peer group you had a built-in peer group that i think was healthier ecosystem uh, within which to grow up and that and then you look at the ages we were that those really formidable years uh, where we depicted these characters and worked together led, leads to where we are now and what you, I believe, perceived in watching HG, HGTV's mm-hmm. Brady Renovation is our, our relationships with one another mm-hmm. are totally real. I mean, because, I, you know, I, I've known Barry and Mike, you know, for 50 three years I, I the only people on this planet that I, I I'm in touch with that I've known longer are my own my own sibs so um, we have and we're foxhole buddies of yeah. sorts yeah. because it's like you know our experience was was owned by very few and we had Bob and we had Florence and we had Anne as examples and and they were all different um, providing us with uh, you know sort of um, a, a measure of example. Mm-hmm. And then we had all the other um, individuals on the set, all being adults, who um, were sort of like aunts and uncles to all of us. And I mean, I remember quite really, I mean, I think it was in the first season we had our Christmas episode. And I, w- I marveled at what Christmas was like on the set that year. <laughs> um, and, and that, you know, I'd laugh at it later knowing that Sherwood Schwartz was throwing us Christmas and he's He's Jewish, you know. He doesn't probably celebrate Christmas. He celebrates Hanukkah. But it was a, it was a much more kind of festive Christmas than we had at home. Wow. Now, mind you, as I say these things to to our audience, I don't want to be negative or sounding negative toward toward my house. I just had this. I had I had two homes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had I had some place to compare what home was like, and it happened to be television and a television series. So yeah, maybe it, it's unfair because. It was it was going to it was going to be invested in to be a bigger event than the Christmases that we had at home. But, but it also know, it gave me a, you know an example of what you could aspire to. But you would see everybody's parents on the set and get yep. to be able sort of to compare you know what your family unit was like as you know as opposed to all the other five different kids whose parents probably came and went. You got to know the mothers. Yeah, the mothers. Because the mothers all too. Except for Barry's mom was around for a year or two, and then he was under. He um, was able to drive. Mom didn't have to be there as long as there was another one of. And it was my mom that could be assigned his his uh, guardianship while he was there. Of course, we also had our, uh, an incredible welfare welfare worker in Francis Whitfield, who was also our teacher when we were in school up till eighth grade. Um, she was Mother Teresa. She was just another of these wonderful parental um, guardians. And um, we, we were just very lucky in all the players that we had around us and that we had each other and that the show was about what it, what it was about. Mm-hmm. I mean, the show was about, you know, kids finding their place. And fi- so. solving problems. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and finding and, and, and being and, and and having it done so in a way that it's respectful to the kids mm-hmm. and the adults. You, you know, it wasn't it. at the expense. It wasn't like we had you know the comedy leaped from you know there being somebody that needed to be blind mm-hmm. or stupid. But if you're you going to have it, an experience that you learn from it, yeah. I mean, and I and I realize how much I've learned from it. Not at the time it was going on, but looking back on it, I'm going, geez, you know, who am I today? Is in part 
relative to those experiences. Mm -hmm. And and that's what's so unique about this, because I don't think you could you would say to, you know, uh, to your own child, let's get you into show business, because that's where you're going to find real health. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you were one of I don't want to say the fewest people. I don't know what the numbers are, but one of those uh, fortunate people who was able to walk across this bridge from intense child stardom to a successful and creative adult life. You have many skills in the business world and kind of describe what you did after your overall show. I, I, you know, I would find out when I was 30 some odd years old that I had ADD and you don't have late onset ADD, ADHD. It's, you know, you've had it since you were a child. I get to look back on that, you know, looking back on your childhood, you, it's hard to see ADD in photographs because yeah. it needs motion, but you can mm -hmm. watch the, the, I watch me now and all that stuff that is clearly a result of the ADD that I had. It's the twitching. It's the, you know, ask me to stay still when it's, you know, I'll, I'll stay still, but the, the energy is going to come out in some frenetic odd kind of way um uh, my speech patterns and so forth i can i see it all um i didn't know what that was at the time but the the uh, you know that bit that's in me um is that i call the squirrel right you know <laughs> your attention is always at something that's that's in front of you uh helped you know when all of a sudden that 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 uh chapter in my world ended i was interested in school I mean, like Ron Howard writes about, you know, I was looking forward to being with with my peers, uh, learning stuff. I was always very much into science and 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 uh, engineering. Um, that's what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to be an astronaut or, you know, a, a scientist of some sort. I saw myself in a lab coat. Anyway, so I, you know, I was just naturally curious about everything around me. So it was very easy to make a transition into something else because, uh, you know, whatever crossed my path, I was I was interested in. But when the computer came around into my personal life, it, um, and this is like '85. Um, it helped transform me as a person because I was now a young adult struggling with whatever this was, uh, my own personal manner um, of organization that was haphazard and unable to be bound. Focused. Um, and the computer helped me. Yeah. The computer put everything in a place that I could read to correct my spelling, which I was horrid at. Yeah. Um, um, and... Um, it, it didn't, it, it, you know, unlike my mom, I didn't, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't judge me for not knowing how to Let me tell you got, a funny it story. A, it got it, it got it corrected. Yeah. Let um, me tell you a personal story about exactly what you're talking about. My older son, who is 35 years old now, was diagnosed early on with ADHD and we had to, um, we had to, it was really affecting his life. We had to take him out of regular high school and put him in a special school and he was diagnosed. They went through a long battery of tests with a psychologist who specialized in ADHD. And the school where this boy ended up had classes for parents of ADD children. So it was a six-week class, and we would go once a week on Wednesday. And at the end of the class period, six, six weeks, I went to the teacher and I said, I just feel like I should pay you double the tuition for this class because... I learned more about myself in this class than I did about my son. I mean, I knew my son's problem because they were, they were, you know, officially diagnosed. But everything, all of the syndromes, all of the lifestyle weirdnesses and, uh, and 
and problems I had were all because I myself was ADHD, but they didn't have the names for it when I was growing up. They called it, you know, you have bad reading comprehension or something like that. It was always an insult, like you're a daydreamer, uh, you're lazy, you know, you're not trying. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I it was such a revelation to me. But that didn't come into my life until I was like 45 years old. But it was, uh, I thought, wow, it answered so many questions about my past. And it sounds like you had a similar circumstance. Exactly the same experience. Yeah. And then everything else made sense. Mm-hmm. That was sort of like dark closeted because people didn't need to know about the struggles that you were having because they didn't see them because you learned to compensate for them yeah. in odd kind of ways mm-hmm. but it you know um you, you were kind of aware where it was that you were going to step out too far into the light mm-hmm. um and you know fall off the ledge uh reading was my big thing i mean because i always knew my parents were both really smart people mm-hmm. um highly educated and uh, you know expected that for their children so we you know i I was raised in an educated environment Mm -hmm. um and though they paid very little attention to our grades and so forth uh we always you know all of us got good grades i think i'm the only one in our family that 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 had this adhd thing but um i do believe my mom had something my dad might have had something yeah you don't know and they didn't know there was undiagnosed but 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 just to, to put a third act on this thing the beauty is now and i'm really proud of where schools have gone because the awareness about this particular disorder has been raised so much that now schools are, especially public schools, are insisted on adhering to certain things like the uh, children who are officially diagnosed have to be given longer to test. They can be tested outside the classroom in another environment. They have to be given longer to do projects. So uh, society's become very, very aware of this and is trying to uh, is trying to boost these children a little bit, which is wonderful. Certainly, not. Well, I think there's there's a great value in people that have these kind of uh, thought yeah. patterns because mm-hmm. they think differently, mm-hmm. and as a result of thinking differently, they they can arrive at 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 at, um, at conclusions and at at at. at, at the answer to problems that no one else yeah. even saw mm-hmm. yet as Ingenu- a problem. Absolutely. Ingenuity, um, problem they, you know, solving. They, they, and, I, and, I, and I think, and I think part of it is it's it's always been around. I, I mean, our awareness is, is what it is because we're now kind of aware of it and we're not, uh, we recognize that not everyone is built with the same formula. Um, and I, I have to believe because physical, physical, something physical, as is a great um, moderator of it, but we don't live those lives anymore. Mm. It, it, it stems out of um, you know the person who would see <laughs> uh, the lion or could sit there for eight hours watching for them, yeah, uh, without getting you know their focus you know uh, destroyed. Uh, is that person, you know, so there's a value to them. It's a yeah. matter of finding where that value is. Yeah, in the they would have been just. And your coping mechanisms often drive you to great success. Our friend Henry Winkler is dyslexic, Jay Leno's dyslexic, and they talk very openly about how their brain had to morph around these ideas and it made it, it, it exercised muscles in the other part of the brain that led them to great success. 
Yeah. I'm highly dyslexic. I was the first thing I suffered from. But I, you know, I thought maybe I'm going to keep this quiet before people realize that I'm, yeah, I got a problem. <laughs> but I knew I could read. I, I just weird. I could, I, I mean, I, you couldn't get my eyes out of a, out of something I was interested in. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing, because a lot of kids, a lot of boys, they might have no reading problem whatsoever. When it comes to a comic book, you know, you can't, you can't feed them enough. Mm-hmm. But you give them, you know, Text. Tale of Two Cities like me, yeah. and <laughs> I'll be turning the first four pages forever, you know, realizing I, I didn't exactly. get anything out. And I think what happens is, like, the more creative you are, when you're looking at something that doesn't interest you, your creative brain goes off in a creative, interesting direction, and you don't remember what you just read because you're just always creating. Oh, I remember just forcing myself to put my hand, my finger next to the words and go through. Yeah. And, I, and then, and then, like, I have no idea what I no, just that, that was my son's problem. He he was diagnosed with, and the, and the doctor explained it beautifully. It's called a gateway disorder, where you read something and your brain, because of biology and electricity and all kinds of things, doesn't put this information where it's supposed to go so he could read the same paragraph five times in a row and not remember one thing about what he had just read and they called it a gateway it, it, it's your brain not being able to put it in the right compartment because he had something better to think about that's all well i so, mean i know that, that, that one of one of the downsides of what i have or the way that it expresses itself mm. is is the immersion mm. it's you get in so you can't get out you can't stop. I mean, chitty chitty. I mean, it's the chitty chitty bang bang. You're the mad scientist because you're right. on something, right? And it's where it's you're in a zone, right? And and it's and it's disruptive to leave it. Mm -hmm. And I cannot um, go back. You know, it's. I mean, if you ask me to write a paper on me, and I don't finish it in one sitting, the next time I come back to it, what I wrote is not right anymore. Ah. Uh. It's 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 like I can't get to that same spot again. Okay, you know, so I gotta you know I, I don't know how to like it or use it hmm. in the space I'm that's now really in. That's really interesting. You know, so that's it almost it. needs to be consent, and that's you know worthless. In the yeah, world but it's like you know in. I've learned too much for this to make sense ever again. Now I have to start. I, over. It does. Yeah, it's, I gotta say that differently now. You know, and I'm yeah, yeah. not sure exactly yeah. why, but you know. No, I, I understand. But like, you can re I can rewrite something. I can, you know, uh, you know, as a friend used to say, beat it to pate. You know, <laughs> just yeah. keep rewriting it or you know, elaborating on it, and and that's why science to me is a lot more um, mm. rudimentary. You know, it has, so talk you know, about science da, 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 and your da, da. life and what you're doing and the creativity you're adding to the planet now. Talk about well. So I did the computer thing for 20 years and found that it was um, it was right. It was my thing. You know, it was my my ability without um, a, a science degree or an engineering degree to be in with all my friends who were sciences, uh, scientists and engineers and amongst them uh, developing and creating product, whether it be hardware and or software throughout that arc of the personal computer um, until, you know, the, the 2000, 2001, when I finally um, needed a rest from it, um, had taken a number of companies um, uh, public or, or out of existence, <laughs> you know, who knows where it's going to end up. Acquired. Um, uh, the exciting ride. And for me, I saw, you know, there's a lot of the, this, this, this high tech industry is very much like the entertainment industry. It's just as wild. It's just as crazy. And it's, and it's those um, on the creative side, talk about, you know, uh, you know, the ADD bunch, um, the engineers are, you know, um, 
it's all in it's all on them you know they're the, they're the they're the stars and uh, you got to figure out how to how to harness that you know and i was a little bit more adept at harnessing that because i was kind of one of them and 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 also not coming at it from a point of view of like that like business might or did initially which is that they have to conform you know you get more out of the creative sorts by letting them work their way mm-hmm. and recognizing that there's a value to that and uh, having the sympathy that I did. So I ended up managing engineers, which was interesting because like they're programmers and I have no idea if what they're telling me is truthful. <laughs> I don't program. <laughs> you're also very, uh, very uh, philanthropic in your nonprofit work. Talk about that in, the, in one particular. Oh, that is the Brady. That is the Brady lunch bill. I couldn't Brady. see it where yeah. it was. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it you is. do have it. <laughs> she um, still carries well, you know, I, I, I tend to... Um, <laughs> it still has sour milk in there. People know the Bradys, trust the Bradys, and I'm invited to do this, that, and the other um, endlessly, as I'm sure you are. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, there's just, there's just so much time you have in a day. Um, and if I am going to get involved with a, a cause, I, I'd, um, it's easier for me to be involved than not be involved, if, but then not too many because that will just sink you. But then again, I, you know, I, I'm a little bit hesitant to be involved with um, a, a cause unless I really know I'm comfortable with, with how much of that which is being raised goes to well, one in particular uh, is the one that spinal cord injuries. Yes, in, in that's Massachusetts. Journey Forward out of Boston. Yeah. Um, you know, there was uh, I was contacted uh, or having a conversation with a friend, his director actor living here in 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 L.A. at the time. This is back in it's fourteen years ago now. Uh, so two thousand five, two thousand six, and and um, um, he's he's um, from Boston. He's got the Boston accent. Um, and uh, uh, it dawned on him. He said, "Wait." You, um, my brother's got an event coming up. He needs a, he needs a host for, um, and I'm a terrible host. But I, but the kind of host they're talking about is just a, a, somebody to um, be there, um, uh, not to organize, not an MC, but a person who who they could advertise around and and they and and help support the event, talk up the event, do the PR for. Uh, and I, I what, what's your brother? You know what's your, what's what's the what's the thing for? What's his um, nonprofit? Well, it turns out. At 19, his brother, the youngest of his large Catholic, uh, Irish Catholic family, uh, dove into a pond one one summer night, and um, it wasn't deep where he dove. And he, um, well, he was a, a non, uh, they say a dependent quadriplegic is what it was um, immediately diagnosed as, meaning that he might not be able to even feed himself from that point forward. And I mean, the story right there is like, I mean, because that's, that's available to all of us. It's not like you have to have a particular chromosomal condition to worry about X mm-hmm. or Y. This is something that can happen to any one of us. Yeah. And uh, I like to think of myself as a as as uh, you know a sport, a physical uh, um, person that needs a life of uh, of usefulness physically. Mm-hmm. And to think that that could happen is like, what would you do? You know, how how would you handle it? And he's 19 at the time that this happens. Right. A ball player, you know, had a promising possible career as a baseball player. Um, and now all of a sudden overnight, and he's the youngest in the family, which, you know, uh, there's not a lot of extra resources and the world turned upside down. Anyway, so he, through his own stubborn brilliance, wouldn't take the diagnosis sitting down. Literally, they told him to sit in a chair. And he said, look, if I told you to sit in a chair for 10 years, not hurt yourself. Even you that has no spine problem, you'd never you'd never get out of it. 
And he's so right. You know, it's like this whole, the whole, the whole, the medical profession and as it handles spinal cord injuries is so backward. Uh, but it's backward perhaps because of the cost related to those who encounter uh, spinal cord injury and or disease from uh, spinal cords. So, but what he did is he investigated, uh, it took him, you know, he was um, like little steps. Initially, um, just tying shoes. Even if it took eight hours to tie one shoe, he was going to do it. Um, and he was completely dependent at the at the front end. But over some time, he was able to tie his shoes. Um, and uh, he was able to gain some of his mobility back. Um, learned about uh, an organization in La Jolla, San Diego County, um, that helped individuals with spinal cord injuries through exercise, something that he, as, a, as an ex-athlete, um, longed for again, <laughs> um, that, they, that, that through this aggressive form of, um, of, of therapy and exercise, you might gain some of your mobility back. Um, and he, he was able, with his brother living in Los Angeles, to do this thing for a couple of years and got back his ability to walk in a walker um, and um, take care of himself, which wow. was what he was after. But now coming home, he realized he lives in Boston. He's, he's, he's a proud Bostonian, thinking also that Boston is one of the centers of, of health. Um, and it doesn't have a place like this. He was, he was angry and insistent that it needed one. And um, it could serve him and others like it. And that's where he was starting from. And, wow. You know, I mean, just simply needing to um, fill a need, mm -hmm. he created Journey Forward. And, he, and the reason I was contacted was he was having his first fundraiser back in Boston. And I joined him at that. I, hearing the story, I said, fine, whatever he needs, I'll go back. And um, I've been, you know, doing this every year for him. Uh, because he's he's a true he's a he, he's a, a true really hero. inspiring. He's, he he is courage. Yeah, I was going to say over over is. and above the specific injuries, just a very inspiring human being. Absolutely awesome. awesome. Well, now talk about uh, before we close here. I wa also want to talk about uh, Christopher Knight Brands because this is a, a new chapter for you, correct? It's not exactly brand new anymore. I mean, we started Christopher Knight Home initially um, uh, under Christopher Knight Brands, uh, the the holding entity, um, in 1919, uh, Jesus, uh, 2011. Okay. And, uh, but it immediately um, got traction and grew um, in part because of the the sensible brilliance of, of the owners of the company who've licensed the brand, created the brand. A friend of mine from high tech, a, a, a business partner in a number of um, past entities, uh, reached out to me, who I laughed at at the time, because this guy, when he was in the computer industry, he had already laid off uh, or laid aside his top secret um, career with uh with the skunk works <laughs> so i mean here's a, he's a physicist and he was working in the computer realm because he wanted out of that area and um he's a brilliant uh friend of mine uh now he was in the furniture space and i kind of chuckled at that and then lo and behold a couple months after i chuckled he's calling me he said listen we have a need for a brand and i think that you're the guy and i'm going you're crazy what what i mean what, but he pointed out that he did their that their company, which he was in, um, um, didn't start, but he got invited into, was looking. They started everybody selling furniture back in you know 
at that time, back in the early 2000s, was selling furniture brick and, brick and mortar mm -hmm. home, right? You'd go mm -hmm. to a store. If it wasn't in the store, you looked in the catalog, and that's how you bought furniture. Mm -hmm. uh, though we had uh, started becoming aware and, and practicing um, online purchases, it was mostly for things uh, like stereos or other things that come in boxes or, you know, um, uh, things that could ship to you more, more uh, you know, uh, more readily. Um, at this time, 2010, 2011, it was recognizing that the online idea of furniture sales is probably an area that needs focus. And though no one's doing it well because it requires something deeper, the metadata that one is able to search for on a site for furniture needs to be specific. It's a it's a longer criteria list than something else because you're trying to make up for the lack of real physical uh, and tactile response. Um, you're you know you're also dealing with a population that uh, has to get their head around the fact that this stuff is going to be shipped to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to also get your head around as the company. How do you ship it to them? Mm -hmm. um, how do you make sure that it's something that it, 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 that uh, arrives as the thing that they thought it was going to be so that they don't want to ship it back? Because it's an impossibility at that point to have a business if 50 percent of everything wants to go in the other direction. Mm -hmm. um, there were there were uh, a few online companies that um, and the one uh, that uh, comes to mind uh, that did it first was Overstock. Uh, which had the unfortunate name of overstock, making people think that, in fact, they're selling other people's overstock. It wasn't. It was just the name of an online entity who happened to see a hole in the marketplace for furniture. They also did other things, jewelry and so forth, like Amazon would. But they focused um, uh, on jewelry and furniture primarily. And that provided then um, a, a presentation of furniture that that they would they would learn from and it would ever grow and uh, made for the experience to be uh, positive, more positive than others, just throwing a picture up and telling you something about it um, that wasn't nearly enough. So this company that that imported and manufactured furniture that my friend worked for was looking at them to be sort of the uh, focus for a new brand for them. And they were intending on getting out of the brick and mortar space for furniture sales because they saw the future for furniture was going to be online, mm. at least where they want it to be. And that there was going to be a great deal of growth in that area. And that the reason for the brand was and the reason for me being that brand was that they needed somebody trustworthy. <laughs> All comes back to being a Brady. Yeah. Um, you know, the, mm. I, um, uh, you know, being a Brady means that you're a member of of everyone's family. Right. You're kind of invited to Thanksgiving dinner without even knowing the names of the family. <laughs> and 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 it's like a weird place to be because all of a sudden people are acting to you in such a familiar fashion and you don't even know, the, you know who they are. Yeah, but uh, you're, yet. you're also very good at hosting and I've watched the videos where you present the the brand on, on your website and you're very you're very good at that. The fact is is that people did trust the resistance yeah. to pushing the button to 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 making that first purchase to gain that experience um, was the purpose behind the selection of, of me. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I've always taken the position that I've got a lot to protect. I was, when I was in the high tech space and I was selling computer stuff I knew that going through that door, um, oddly, the Brady's was never going to go away. Uh, it was there, but it probably opened that door more readily. It mm -hmm. answered the phone more readily. Yeah. It gave me an audience more readily. But um, 
if I left a stench behind, yeah. it would be remembered more. Sure. It would, you know, there was more, it, it could be a double-edged sword. So, um. so I couldn't, I had to be more careful and more, more concerned about making certain that um, what I state is true. You have to make the family proud and you're doing that. <laughs> now talk about your feature documentary, True Love, the film. Uh, you know, you spoke earlier about this idea of, uh, you know, the, our society right now is that, you know, sort of uh, this sense of division between us and distrust and all. And there's an air uh, that um, it, 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 it when seeing this opportunity come our way, my, I started a production company with a good friend, Phil Viardo, uh, three years ago. And um, Phil and uh, one of our producers became aware of um a sensation on YouTube at the time. I think she was 13. Her name was Callie True Love, and she um, uh, used the word suffer, and I'm, I don't intend to. She has a chromosomal condition called Williams syndrome. I didn't know anything about Williams syndrome, um, but her uh, popularity on um, on uh, YouTube was was. Uh, uh, because of her nature, just because of her. She was a darling child and also suffering from this thing called Williams syndrome. Um, learning about Williams syndrome and learning about her and learning about her story helped also would also help bring attention to Williams syndrome. It, it, we wanted to do her story. And the fact that her name was True Love, mm -hmm. that's her last name, True mm -hmm. Love. Um, what is the Williams right. syndrome? We have to tell people. Uh, it's so chrom I think it's a it's a uh, mi missing chromosomes on um, missing genes on chromosome seven, I believe. But ultimately, what it leads to is some um, children that are born with um, uh, varying degrees of of heart defects, um, um, some odd ad abnormalities in the face um, that that render the individuals sometimes elf like. Mm -hmm. uh, elfish, you will. Um, but one of the really interesting aspects of it, and we explore through the movie, is that there's a behavior that these children have that is remarkably disarming, mm -hmm. loving. Mm -hmm. It's just they they have just a, a way to express themselves that is, um, how do I, I don't want it to sound, um, you know, it's There's like no what, way you, you know the same thing remember. a puppy does to you just trusting mm -hmm. it, well it, it just it's just it's yes you you don't have any distrust none whatsoever it, it, it just warms your heart to be around them mm -hmm. and they're like that by and large to a person mm -hmm. and there's something about that missing um, gene and and quite off the subject is there's been some learning going on uh, uh secondarily to william syndrome but apparently uh dogs <laughs> being um, from, you know, uh, a canine uh, from the wolf population seem to miss that same part yeah, so of maybe the chromosome. And that there was some pack of dogs that missed these chromosomes. They made it possible for them to live with people. Okay, so it's it's more like they're missing something that that maybe keeps most of us alive because it's a, an element right. that is necessary right. to they, keep us the safe. Look, they could be a target for anyone wanting to, you know, do something, you know, um, a misdeed. Um, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, I look back, I look at it and go, you know, this has been going on for centuries. It's a, one out of 10,000 people. So, you know, how many millions of people that is. It's interesting that we don't know anything about it because mm -hmm. it's all around us. But in, in that these people also look like elfish mm -hmm. um, and are like, 
you know, sort of stories of, you know, Elvis. I'm wondering, hmm, I Maybe wonder that's where if it that has from. something to do with it. But we explore through the movie, her meeting, uh, she gained a lot of fans uh, virtually, um, but through it, she gets to travel and meet these people, meet others with Williams syndrome um, that she, uh, to that point, had only met online. Um, and get to know her community. And wow. we get to know uh, that community as well. And, right. and in fact, the movie is now on the festival circuit. And uh, next month, uh, actually not next month, next week, two weeks away uh, from uh, the Williams Syndrome Conference in, um, in Illinois, in um, Shamsburg, um, that uh, will be premiering the movie. Oh, wonderful. Congratulations. Good for you. What a nice piece of work. Well, we're going to wrap up the show now. I know you can find uh, Chris on The Real Christopher Knight. Is that Instagram? Yes. It's and Instagram. where would we find you on Facebook? Uh, at, at The Real Christopher Knight as well. Okay. And then the podcast page is The Real Brady Bros, B-R-O-S. Anywhere podcasts are downloadable, yeah, you'll find us. Yeah, find look for us, The yeah. Real Brady Bros, right? That's Barry and I pontificating about episodes. We use it as, we use the episode recap kind of format to then launch into our recollections. Coming to us from Ed Mann. And uh, we just want to thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue the conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediapathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media. You can sign up for our fun and dishy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we would love to thank our wonderful guest, Christopher Knight. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Planker here with Fritz Coleman and Christopher Knight. And we will see you along the media path. I know I get a little long-winded. I'm a little longer. Oh, no. Thank you. If we, if, we, uh, if we ever do another Brady something or other, we should do another show. Oh, I would love that.